We're ready to continue working with um, our study and Bible study methods and continuing to develop the process of uh, observation. I noticed that it looks like the ranks have thinned a little bit tonight from the previous two weeks as we get a little more into uh, doing some things. Shouldn't scare anybody. Maybe it's just the weather today. People didn't want to get out, um, which I can understand because it's kind of nasty out there. But anyway, let me uh, open in prayer. We'll have, as usual, a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity again to come together and to uh, sharpen our skills at reading, at learning your word, studying your word, that we might uh, be able to handle it better, whether we teach in Sunday school or just teach the family or just for our own personal benefit of of being able to learn uh, well what is in your word. Father, we thank you for this time we have together and pray that you would help us to focus and concentrate and learn. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I wanted to uh, <clears throat> just remind you a little bit about observation. I ran across this quote from Yogi Berra. You can observe a lot just by watching. It's amazing how many people don't see what they're looking at as some of us learned last week with the little observation exercises. Uh, one of the things I wanted to t- talk about as a as an orientation or beginning point today is how we're doing Bible study methods. The approach that we're taking, observation, interpretation, application, correlation, is a an inductive approach to Bible study. This is a basic approach to the, uh, what we call this. I talked a little bit about this the last time, a scientific methodology. You don't come to the text loaded with a set of of, <clears throat> of of conclusions that you then read into the text. That's what a lot of people are used to. Uh, when you listen to a pastor and you study a passage, the pastor is telling you the results of his observation, interpretation, and application. That is a, a deductive uh, process. Inductive process is when you look at the data Without, you know, become, none of us can look at it totally objectively. None of us comes without certain preconceived ideas about what the scripture is talking about. But we have to be honest with ourselves in understanding that we all have certain preconceived notions. We come with a certain set of glasses that we have on. And we have to understand as a, as an interpreter, as a reader of the Bible, that we have those and that we learn to be objective in setting that aside and listen to what the text says, what does the Bible say, and not what do we want it to say, or what do we think it says, or what have we been told that this says, but to just look at the text itself uh, with as much of a level of, um, of objectivity as possible. So deduction means that Someone has already gone through this process, and then they're uh, telling us what the text says, whereas induction means that we're uh, going through the process of discovery uh, on our own, and we're going to try to figure out what the text says uh, first and, and foremost. And <clears throat> one of the reasons we should study the Bible inductively is because if you just jump, for example, to commentary, say, well, this is a good commentary, so-and-so recommended it to me, uh, it, it's usually pretty good, 
then you're limited, usually it limits you to thinking about the text in the way that the commentator has said it. And then you read another commentary, and it may say something different. And then you look at a third commentary, and it says something different. Or, to put it in another way, you may listen to one pastor teach a passage, and he says that the text means one thing. You listen to another pastor, and they say that it means a second thing. You listen to another pastor, and they say it means even something else. How do you arrive at truth? How can you evaluate that? I talked about the Bereans in Acts 17, that they were praised because they didn't just take Paul's word for it. They searched the Scriptures daily to see what was so. Well, how do you uh, search, uh, search the Scripture? And we do that because we have to learn how to read, how to study, how to think about about what the text says, and that's a process. Uh, often I think of it like peeling an onion. You start at the at the outer level, and you just keep taking off one layer after another, and that's the whole sort of learning process that we have as as believers, and it's anybody in any kind of new uh, new endeavor. It takes time to learn those things. And so it helps us to develop a, a way of thinking critically so that we can evaluate what, what we're, what we're taught and what we're, um, what we're reading. So, uh, it's induction as opposed to deduction. Now as we start off, I started last time with just basic questions that we need to answer in terms of a, a passage that we look at. I gave you a passage last time. Trying to get to to the bottom of this list. See, I didn't want to do that. If I go back here, I got to drop all the way down. I think there were six or seven of them. I think that's it. Okay, when you look at a passage, I signed James one nineteen because in the past couple of weeks, I had asked you to read through James. Every day, five chapters, read through James every day because that is how you immerse yourself into what is being said, what the writer is talking about. You become familiar with it, and and that's a general read. And then you begin to hone in on a particular on a particular Bible verse. So we start off in observation. We want to ask some basic questions. Now, before we get to James one nineteen. What I want to do is work on an exercise. However, this didn't um, this didn't come up real well earlier. We were going to use the other uh, projector, but it's a little fuzzy, so we're going to try try something uh, a little different. But first of all, I want to give you uh, I want to play another video for everyone related to observation and inference. This is an important thing to think through as you're doing inductive study. So let me see if that worked. Yes, how I love it when I click on something, it does what I want it to do. Okay, I thought this was a helpful little video. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Eddie and I were messing with other stuff, so I didn't get the sound on here, so we may have to test the sound a second. Okay, I'm plugged in with the sound, Eddie. Okay, I've got my volume up pretty well. This volume's up most of the way. 
You ready back there? We'll see how, how the sound goes to begin with. Turn it up. Okay. Hi, I'm Tracy. We're here to talk about observation. Now, an observation is the act of perceiving. And what I'm going to have you do here is make some observations for yourself about what's in front of me. So, for example, uh, an observation could be if you were to measure the base of this object, it'd be approximately four and a half inches. To be more specific, I'd actually have to measure. I'm going to give you a couple seconds to make some observations for yourself. Things you can notice are color, height, but these are facts that we want to make. Okay? So if you have some observations written down, that's the best. Now, make some more observations. Now, were you expecting that? Was one of your observations that this was a candle? Did you refer to this as maybe the candle is white? Because that would be inferring that what is in this candlestick holder is actually a candle. But what that is an, is an inference or an assumption. Now, in science, it's important to collect data that are observations and not inferences. Okay, now what did you learn from that little video? Yeah, it, it's real easy in our thinking to slip from what we think is an observation to something that is an inference, something that we've we've already made an assumption that something is true, and then we're going to another con and drawing a conclusion from that without establishing the, the, the fact of something to begin with. And so it's important in, in um, let me get rid of this. It's, whoa. There. Okay. It's important when we're, when we're at the stage of observation to focus on what's demonstrable objectively, what is what we can establish as true? What are the facts? The, like the old, old, old Dragnet series, just the facts, ma'am, and determining what those are, and not moving to conclusions or inferences. Where do we get into dealing with inferences and conclusions? What step does that come under? That comes under the second step of <clears throat> it's part of interpretation. Uh, what does something mean as opposed to just what do we read or what does it say? And I, I emphasize that because a lot of times in, in Bible study, and a lot of times you'll see this with, with pastors and, and, and students who move too fast, you'll get into that what does it mean section long before you should. You haven't really determined what is there? And constantly, as as someone who's been in the Word for in a in an in-depth manner for you know four decades, 
I'm constantly go back to a passage and see things that I just didn't notice before. And sometimes I see them because I see them, and sometimes I see them because I read something somewhere in a commentary, and I went, you know, that's really right, but I never, never saw that. And it never occurred to me that that was going on. Sometimes they're really obvious things, and you go, I can't believe I missed that. So we have to understand <clears throat> what we're doing in terms of observation. What does the text say? We also do things that relate to as part of observation, but as a more technical aspect of observation, is called uh, maybe measurement. And that is in science, you'd measure things, like she was talking about the candlestick holder, measuring the base, and that might come into Bible study in some uh, uh, different ways in terms of grammatical analysis and some of those uh, technical aspects. Then you look at things in terms of classification. We read a verse and we're thinking about it in terms of what, where does this fit within systematic theology? Well, that again moves us beyond observation more into the interpretation stage. And then there are, uh, implications of a passage. And that gets us into the area of application. And when we get to application, I'm going to uh, address some issues that I've thought about a lot recently. Uh, <clears throat> this is a preview of coming attractions. But one of the things that, that is, I've thought through in the last year is that when we think about application or use the word application, we use it in different senses. Let me give you a, 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 an idea of this. <clears throat> In Connecticut, it is now, in Maryland and New York, it is now illegal to to purchase or say, sell, and in some cases even to own, a 30-round magazine for a firearm or a 20-round magazine for a firearm, anything in excess of maybe 10 rounds or 7 rounds, depending on the state. Now, we live in the great state of Texas. Now, is there any application of that law to anyone who lives in Texas? No, none whatsoever. You can't take that law in one state, and it could apply to property taxes. It could apply to contract law. I just used a gun laws because <clears throat> that's currently in the news kind of thing. But you can't take a, a law for that, that's written for one nation or one state doesn't have application in another state. If you have uh, to bring it home in a, in a little more technical way or a little more <clears throat> common way, if your neighbor has a mortgage and you have a mortgage, does anything about that their mortgage apply to you? No, not one thing. Does anything about their mortgage have an implication for your mortgage? Possibly. But that doesn't mean it's it, it applies. There's a difference between application and implication. For example... Does anything in the Mosaic Law uh, apply to the United States? But you get all kinds of people who think who say that they use that terminology. What I'm doing is I'm challenging the terminology that that we use application in fuzzy ways. Does does the the principle "Thou shalt not commit murder" does that apply to the United States from the Mosaic Law? No, it doesn't. If nothing in the Mosaic Law applies to the United States, how could thou shalt not murder from the Mosaic Law apply to the United States? It, it's, it can't. Does it have an implication? 
Yes, it has an implication, but it doesn't apply. That's why I'm drawing, I'm drawing this distinction is because there are things in the scripture that principles from the Old Testament, principles from the law, principles from the Sermon on the Mount that have an implication because they are in their original context, they are an expression of a universal principle within the, within the plan and purpose of God and, and, and the character of God. And so you might have thou shalt not murder from the Mosaic law from the Ten Commandments, that applied only to Israel. It didn't apply to any other nation because the law in which it existed didn't apply to any other nation. Does that mean other nations had the moral right to commit murder? No. But it, so that's the that's an implication. So we go to the Mosaic law to understand God's view of law. And how does God's, how might God's view of law as expressed in the Mosaic law be, be, have an implication or an inference for other law codes? So it's those kinds of things that are, that are, uh, that we're sort of fine tuning. Now this is an observation skills test that I discovered and I thought that we would go through this because it teaches us a little bit about uh, thinking through the differences in what we what we see. So it's going to have 20 different statements, and then we have a multiple choice answer. So I thought this would be a little group project. And we read the statement, the boy got wet. He must have played in the rain. Is that an inference? Is that a classification? Is it a prediction? Or is it an observation? It's an inference. What part of it would be an observation? The boy got wet. So this is an inference. So we'll click on inference. We have a little score right up here, so we get one right. The hurricane will make landfall tonight. Is that inference, prediction, classification, or observation? That's prediction. Good. Uh, the boy will trip over the girl. Is that inference, prediction, observation, or classification? Prediction. prediction. <laughs> but we don't know that he will. We're just predicting he might. Okay, the rock feels hard. Is that observation, classification, inference, or prediction? Observation. Yeah, we're doing pretty good. The weather will be nice tonight. Is that measurement, observation, classification, or prediction? Prediction again. Boy, they got a lot other. To describe an object using your five senses. Is that classification, inference, prediction, or observation? Observation. To put items in a group by likes and dislikes. That'd be classification. Now, classification moves us into the area of interpretation. Once we're correlating uh, data, that's where that comes in a little later on. The house at the end of the block is gone. The house must have burned down. Inference, 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 classification, or prediction? The first inference. Anybody want the second inference? Okay, using instruments to find numbers about an item. Is that measurement, classification, prediction, or observation? What? 
I'm getting mixed answers. It's measurement. The peanut tastes salty. Inference, observation, classification, or prediction? Observation. Measure, uh, the girl ran 10 miles an hour. Is this measurement, observation, prediction, or classification? Measurement. It will be hot at lunchtime. Prediction, measurement, inference, or classification? Prediction. The girl put the frogs into groups. Prediction, measurement, observation, or classification? Classification. And classification presupposes observation. Using past knowledge to figure out what will happen. Inference, observation, prediction, or classification? What? Prediction. Prediction. You can see that the ball is round. Prediction, inference, classification, or observation? The boy has a hole in his shirt, so the dog must have bit the boy. Is that classification, prediction, inference, or observation? Inference. Very good. The cloud looks gray. Prediction, classification, measurement, or observation? Observation. The boy fell down because someone tripped him. Classification, inference, observation, or prediction? Inference. Using your past knowledge to figure out what happened, is that inference, prediction, observation, or classification? Inference. And the frog is 10 centimeters long. Measurement. All right. Then we have our last one. These two people will eat food. Inference, prediction, classification, or observation? Prediction. Very good. I think we got them all. Very good. Excellent. Okay. So when we look at Scripture, we're looking at the issue of observation. Now, last time, I put up these questions on the screen. Who's the author of the passage? Whom is the author addressing? When was it written? What was the historical content? What is the most important term concept in the passage? Which words need explanation or definition? Who are the people you need to identify? Okay, what I want to do here is look at, we'll look at the other questions later when they come up, but I want to start with Okay, I'm going to clear my screen here. And then get rid of this right now. Okay, we're just going to open up a New King James Bible. You know, I think I'll open up New American Standard just so we have a little parallel. Now, if you ever use Logos, you can connect your frames by um, going over here and linking them so they'll scroll together. So we have New American Standard on the left, and we have New King James on the right. And we're going to go to John 20. I don't think that's what you're going to I've got it here. i got to set it up here, and then I'll move it over here. 
Okay. There we go. John twenty thirty one. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Okay, now, what are the things that we would do in terms of observation? Let's go through the questions. Who wrote this? John. It's in the Gospel of John. To whom did he write it? How would you find out the answer to the first part, that it's written by John? Now, the next thing you'd want to do is find out some things about John. Because we asked the question, who wrote it, but what do we know about John? Where would you go to find out information about John? Right. You go to a Bible dictionary. You go to a Bible encyclopedia to look up some things about about John. <clears throat> now in um, is that large enough or can I bump that down a little bit? I think I can you can read it pretty well if I make it a little bit smaller. There. Y'all can read that okay? Now if I open up a go to a Bible encyclopedia Let's just use one I was, uh, talked about for the class, which is Unger's Bible Encyclopedia. So we'll open up, uh, the new Unger's Bible Encyclopedia and we want to look up John. So type in John and we go to the Gospel of John. I'm going to reduce the size of this a little bit so we can all see a little bit more. And we read, it'll tell us a little bit about the background of the name uh, from the Hebrew Yohanan, meaning Yahweh is gracious. Uh, Hanan means grace, and Yah would be the first syllable would relate to the name of Yahweh. The name of the apostle, see the article following, uh, of the baptizer and the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So we have uh, <coughs> the father of the apostle Peter mentioned, uh, and then we get to John the Apostle here. And then we can read about him. He's a son of Zebedee. He was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. His mother was uh, Salome. And then um, uh, it goes on and gives us more information about uh, John, that he was probably the younger brother of James, uh, and various other factors related to his background and family. And then his uh, introduction to Jesus in John 1, uh, 35. Furthermore, his career as an apostle and his life, and we can read about that. So you can read through an article of that nature and just writing things out that you learn about the background of John, you could write as many as 25, 30, 40, 50 different things just on John, just on observations about John. Now, not all of that is going to pertain to necessarily understanding this particular passage, but that is one uh, one way in which you're doing observation. The other thing that you can do is say, well, to whom is he writing? How would you get that information? Where would you go to get information about the audience, to whom this is being written? Well, 
Another way in which you can go about this, you can also go into a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia, and they, it will have an article on uh, the Gospel of John. We have the first epistle, second, third epistle, John the Gospel of. And so uh, Bible Dictionary Encyclopedia will then give you a lot of information related to the gospel, its purpose. It'll give you an outline, tell you something about the author and why it's believed that John wrote it because the name's not mentioned there, authenticity, date. It didn't go into authorship there. If I'm opening my Ryrie Study Bible... And uh, you look at the opening of any study Bible. It gives you some information about John. It'll give you some information about the, uh, excuse me, the author, uh, the distinctive approach, the date, contents, and then it also gives an outline. Now, if you notice, if you study very much. You will see that the outline you may read in a Bible dictionary or Bible commentary like the Bible Knowledge Commentary and uh, the Gospel of John, that those outlines might vary. They might be different. And then you have to ask the question, why are they different? Because in most cases, what you have is a Bible scholar like Ryrie with the Ryrie Study Bible or whoever wrote this article in Unger Bible Dictionary and others, they have read through John. They have gone through an inductive Bible study approach, and they have looked at various clues within uh, the structure, the writing of the Gospel of John, and they have organized it according to according to their uh, understanding of the breakdown of the text for various uh, various reasons. And so that's why you get those differences. And how do you evaluate that? Well, you evaluate it by reading it yourself and reading through their discussion and learning why it is that they think that it was organized in that, in that particular way. Now, uh, so we ask that question, to whom did John write? He, uh, and when did he write it? When was this written? That's another big clue. If you look at um, Ryrie's introductory article in the Ryrie Study Bible, he says the date that it was written would be 85 to 90 A.D. What would be significant about that date? Yeah, it's after the destruction of Jerusalem. That's, that's an important factor there. It's after the destruction of Jerusalem. How long did the Apostle John live? Hmm? He he so, died sometime in the 90s, after probably after 95. Uh, what else did John write? Revelation and and what? Three epistles. So that's all part of, of observation. What's and then you have to might ask the question: Well, what is the relationship of those different writings to one another? And John, I believe, was written first 
I'm not sure, first in terms of the epistles, because first John, the second and third epistles clearly build on things that are in, in the first epistle. The first epistle clearly builds on and develops the ideas that are in the upper room discourse in the section in the gospel of John from chapter 13 through chapter, uh, through chapter 17. That's referred to as the upper room discourse. And the ideas that what Jesus taught in the upper room discourse and the vocabulary in the upper room discourse are just all through the first epistle. And you can't really understand First John if you don't understand the, uh, the upper room discourse. And what Jesus teaches about the Christian life in the upper room discourse in John, um, in John 13 through, through uh, 17 is foundational to understanding what he says in, in First John. And, and if you study the interpretation of these sections, you realize that the people who interpret First John uh, one way also interpret the Upper Room Discourse a certain way, and, and uh, they, they, they're connected together. So that's another way in which we go through the process of making observations of the text. What I've done is, and we'll get back to the slide, is as I talked about last time, one of the first areas we work in in observation is, is um, what I call the culture and context. And I'm focusing on context here because we're looking at all of the con- things that relate to uh, contextual issues uh, of, uh, for understanding uh, an epistle or understanding a book. Who wrote it? When did they wrote it? Why did Why did they write it? Uh, to whom did they uh, write it? That's all part of of understanding the text. So we go back to our slide. We look who's the author of the passage. It's John. Uh, to whom is he uh, writing? Uh, Gentiles or Jews? Gentiles. Uh, where? Uh, when was it written? It was written. Uh, Ryrie says eighty-five to ninety. There are some who believe that he wrote the Gospel of John after he wrote Revelation. So that would put it maybe even a little later, like ninety-three or ninety-four. Uh, what was the historical context? Where was John when he wrote this? Anybody know? No, that's Revelation. That's a good guess. He was in Ephesus. He was the uh, he was the elder, an elder pastor in Ephesus. At the end of his life, he writes as an elder. That's how he identifies himself as John the Elder in Second John and Third John. Now there are some people that try to argue that. Uh, that John the Elder, John the Presbyter, that's the uh, Greek word, presbyteros, that John the Elder is not the same as John the Apostle. But John is the last, probably the last surviving apostle as far as we know. And by that time, the, the, the temple has been destroyed, uh, the, the church age has been clearly established, and I think we're already into a transition period. He's been, he's no longer working, traveling throughout the world. He is oper- operating in a local church ministry, and so his primary uh, ministry as an apostle has probably um, transitioned into a local church uh, ministry. He's writing to Gentiles. He's writing his um, remembrances about Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about John, when you think about uh, John writing this, 
When did these events take place? 30 to 33. When's he writing? 90 to 95. How many years have gone by? 60 years. He's had a lot of time to reflect and to think about what went on. Now, I, I don't think just, now this would be an inference. This is not an observation. I don't think from my observation of people and my observation of events that, th- that John decided to sit down in 90 or 93 AD and start writing this. John has probably written bits and pieces down through the years. He certainly thought about it, reflected upon uh, his time with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was very close personally. He's referred to as the beloved disciple. There was a special intimacy and friendship with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, during that time when they were on the earth. So he is going through... Um, is going through that uh, these things in his mind. And when we read 1 John and compare it to what the Lord taught in the Upper Room Discourse, you see how how John has expanded and developed the thinking of Jesus as expressed in John 13 through 17 in some phenomenal ways. And so there's a lot of reflection there. And so those things come out, and that's all part of the historical context. Okay, back to our passage in John twenty thirty one. What's the most important term, or what are the most important terms or concepts uh, in the passage? But these have been written, or these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Okay, what are the most important terms in that passage? Written You may believe. Believe, okay. So what we'll do is I'm going to come up here and we're going to uh, take this and we'll underline it. What's another word? These. These, very good. These. These what? These what? Well, you have to ask that question. And you're, these signs, how do you how do you know it's these signs? Ah, because you've got to go back to verse thirty. Uh, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, see, that's another thing. If you're just looking at at verse thirty-one, what tells you that you need to go back to the previous verse? But, but is tells you that you look at at. Uh, that and that tells you it's part. It, this is part of a sentence. Now we're going to get a little bit later on after we will take a break in a second. I'm going to give it, give a handout here on the cruciality of structure, and that's or do you already have that? I can't remember if I gave that out or not. Cruciality of structure. Do you have that? That's an important aspect. Is is structure the basic the what expresses a base, the basic thought or the basic way to express a thought in, in English? No. A paragraph is a collection of thoughts that have the same theme. Very good, very good guess. So what is it that comprises the basic expression of thought? It's a sentence. So sometimes sentences express a, a couple of connected thoughts. That's a compound sentence. Sometimes they express a lot of things related to the main thought, 
and that has to do with all of the clauses and phrases and and uh, that that are attached to the main idea. But we really want to focus in Bible study on the sentences as the basic unit of thought. And then, as Judy said, when you take uh, a group of of sentences that talk about the same ideas, that's a paragraph. Now, were there paragraphs in the original? Uh, writings of the of the apostles and prophets in the Old Testament. No, they weren't marked. Uh, were there sentences? No. In 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 Greek and in Hebrew, you didn't have punctuation. How did they How did they know where the sentences were and where the where the uh, paragraphs were? Well, in, in Greek, that's clear from the indication. In, in Hebrew, it would be indicated by accents. I'm not sure when the accents came in. Um, but in Greek, it's clear from the from the from just the sentence structure, from the syntax. And so it's pretty clear. Sometimes it's not, and that's why you may have some differences in some places. But in most places, those sentence structures are indicated by periods. And what I tell... Uh, Pastors who are studying in the uh, who don't know the original languages, but uh, should be learning some basic tools to to function in the original languages, is that they need to uh, just open up their Greek text. Let me see here. Um, I'm gonna look at what text do I want. Oh, I know what I want. Okay, if I open up a Greek text here, uh, you see wh- what tells you. Wh- how do you know where the where the sentence ends between verse thirty and verse thirty-one? Well, other than the number, the number doesn't tell you anything. The, the number doesn't tell you that because many times sentences in the Greek will go on for five, six, eight, ten, twelve verses. In the King James, they try to break. The verse make make the when they translate they try to make the verses sentences, but the sentences in the English are not the same as the sentences in Greek. So that's so the idea isn't really you need to look at the sentences that are in your English Bible because in some English Bibles that's really bad. I mean you have like uh, I think it's uh, Ephesians chapter one verses three through eleven or twelve is all one sentence in the Greek. And there are some English translations that will break that into eight or nine sentences. But see, the problem there is if it's one sentence in the Greek, it expresses how many thoughts? One. If it's eight sentences in English or nine sentences in English, how many thoughts have they broken it into? Nine. So is it one, one main idea with a lot of, uh, corollary material or is it, or is it nine ideas? And that's important when you get to interpretation. So if you have a Greek interlinear, which is an, uh, uh, a print Bible that has the Greek text on one line and English un, uh, underneath it, you can just look at it and you can count the periods. That's all you have to do is look for the periods in the Greek text and you know where the sentence structures are. You don't need to read the Greek or know the Greek. You just need to be able to count periods and, and realize that in the Greek text, uh, a, a dot here, see, see the difference between this dot and th- this dot? This dot is above the line, it's in the middle of the line, not at the bottom. This is a period, 
the dot in the middle of the line in, in uh, Greek text represents a semicolon. Okay, it's not, so the punctuation in the, in the Greek text is a little bit different. Okay, I want to take a, take a break, try to watch our time a little bit, take a, a few minutes, get some water, grab a cup of coffee, and come back and take a look at John uh, 20, 31, and see if you can write down about five other things related to observation.